Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, you're listening to New Books in Popular Culture. I'm Erin Lemock. Today's interview is with Carrie Pizzullo, author of Bachelors and Bunnies, The Sexual Politics of Playboy. I am speaking to Carrie Pizzullo. Carrie Pizzullo is Assistant Professor of History at the University of West Georgia, and she's the author of Bachelors and Bunnies, The Sexual Politics of Playboy, which is out by the University of Chicago Press. And we're really excited to have her with us today. Uh, Carrie, will you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I'm recently relocated to Atlanta, Georgia from uh, New York City, where I got my graduate degree in American history from the City University of New York Graduate Center. And I'm happy to be enjoying my first tenure track position. Terrific. Um, Have you worked with a mentor in this experience? Uh, sure, of course. Um, my project started out as a dissertation and, and, you know, along that very long route, you encounter a lot of people who are tremendously helpful. Um, I uh, particularly uh, have worked with Carol Groneman, uh, who's the author of the very fabulous book, uh, Nymphomania. She's a specialist in uh, uh, women's gender and sexual history, as well as Gerald Markowitz. Um, they've been a, a tremendously uh, helpful to me in this project that's taken many years. Terrific. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about how you came to write Bachelors and Bunnies? Sure. Um, you know, it, I, not only are my conclusions uh, surprising to me, as they, they may be to a lot of people, but the fact that I, I wrote about this topic at all has been very surprising to me. I never would imagine that I would end up uh, being a historian of Playboy magazine. But I happened to wander upon the topic when I had just started graduate school at CUNY. I was in a writing seminar in my second or third year there, and I was reading the book um, uh, uh, The Hearts of Men by Barbara Ehrenreich, uh, published in the early 80s, and she talks about uh, this so-called crisis of masculinity in the post-World War II years. And she has a chapter on Playboy and the role that Playboy played in, in changing modern conceptions of masculinity. And I was always really fascinated with the 1950s and, uh, you know, thought of myself as a pop culture specialist, although uh, my previous research had been in post-war films. Um, but this chapter in Playboy I, I found really interesting because I, I began to wonder if the 1950s were such a conservative era, as, as they're often remembered as very conservative years culturally, how did a magazine that many people considered to be pornography become mainstream? How did this sexually explicit magazine become mainstream in a very conservative era? And that was my initial question. And, and this project just started out 
as a, a semester-long research paper. Um, but once I started digging into the magazine, and uh, I realized that there was more going on in the pages of Playboy than just, you know, some naked pictures um, and, and what, you know, you may call uh, softcore porn. I personally don't consider it pornography. Um, but I realized there was a lot more going on in the magazine, and the project just really opened up from there. There were a lot of really interesting uh, questions uh, that I found in my research, and it, it turned into my dissertation. And then I was fortunate enough um, to get access to the company archives while I was still working on the dissertation. And so, of course, the, the project just opened up uh, there even more. Um, and it, it became my book uh, after all of these years. So uh, somehow I found myself now um, a historian and expert on Playboy magazine. Great. In your introduction to the book, you sketch a brief history of Playboy. And I, I was curious if you could tell our audience how you trace the changes in the magazine and the brand from its first issue to today. Um, yeah, my focus is on the way the magazine constructed a gender and sexuality, particularly in its first 20 years. So my periodization of the magazine um, looks at the 1950s, first of all. Uh, my book is, is organized in an overlapping way chronologically and thematically. And the first section is on the 1950s, where the magazine um, was really getting its footing. It started to become uh, very popular within its first few years, founded in 1953. Um, but I think that, that that's one particular era in Playboy's history, um, because it was really reflecting a lot of the gender anxiety that seemed to mark so much of post-war American culture. Women were working outside the home uh, more than ever, and uh, men, uh, particularly middle-class men, were spending more and more time uh, in office jobs, uh, not really needing to flex their muscles uh, too much during the workday anymore, maybe as their, their fathers or grandfathers would have. And so there was a real anxiety in the culture about how gender roles were changing. Uh, were men still manly? And what did it mean to be a man if women um, were working so much outside of the home and taking on these uh, provider roles? And so there was a lot of anxiety about that and a lot of tension. And I discovered that those anxieties really found their way uh, into the magazine in the first few years um, uh, since its founding in 53. There was a lot of hostility expressed in Playboy um, regarding womanhood and marriage in particular. But then I say that something changed um, in the early to mid-1960s, uh, where Playboy really began to take itself more seriously um, as, as, as a vehicle of social and political commentary in, in particular. Um, Hefner brought on board as uh, editorial director A.C. Spektorsky, who had made a name for himself in the New York literary scene. So he really wanted to uh, raise the level of sophistication in Playboy. Um, uh, the interviews, uh, the politics, the magazine began investigative journalism. And that's when the gender politics of the magazine 
magazine really started to shift. And you can very clearly see that the magazine starts speaking out uh, very explicitly in terms of uh, gender equity, uh, women's liberation, uh, gay rights. Um, uh, They were speaking out in civil rights and and against the war in Vietnam uh, in the 1960s. But then um, I say that by uh, the early to mid-70s, and I end uh, my study in 1973, um, there's a shift at that point, too. Um, The magazine started to go into decline. Um, Its readership started to drop off from a peak of about 7 million, and it's been in decline ever since in terms of paid circulation. Um, The magazine was really experiencing a backlash culturally in the 70s from elements of the women's movement, uh, the rising conservative movement of the 70s and certainly into the 80s, the anti-porn movement in which both of those forces, uh, some feminists and conservative activists actually align themselves against magazines like Playboy. Um, So I think that Playboy moved into a different era after uh, the mid-1970s, and it was a very difficult time uh, for the magazine in in a variety of ways. Um, And then uh, over the last maybe 10 or 12 years, uh, since the late 90s, um, and especially after uh, 2000, Playboy has experienced a resurgence, particularly as a brand, uh, not so much the magazine itself. It's, it's, re- it's kept a steady readership, I think, these days around uh, 2 million regular uh, subscribers a month. Um, but as a brand, it's, it's experienced a real resurgence, uh, particularly with the television show on the E! Network, The Girls Next Door, which has been um, a hit show for the network, uh, Young Women are its primary audience. And the bunny logo uh, has experienced a resurgence in terms of uh, consumer branding on T-shirts and jewelry and and, and things like that. And additionally, in the last few years, uh, the Playboy Clubs have started to open around the world once again after those all uh, closed in the 1980s. The newest one is opening in London um, any day now, actually. So I think in its modern incarnation, Playboy, is mostly uh, a consumer brand experience. I think it's a media experience. Um, And and the magazine certainly, um, while it's still there um, and and, and certainly undergirds the entire uh, uh, Playboy existence, it, it doesn't have the same popularity that it had 30 or 40 years ago. Playboy coverage, uh, both by scholars and by the mainstream press, seems cyclical. Um, And recently, Elizabeth Frederigo published Playboy in the Making of the Good Life in Modern America, and Stephen Watts published Mr. Playboy, Hugh Hefner and the American Dream, um, both of which you cite in your book. Mm -hmm. Um, And then outside of scholars, we have Bridget Berman's Hugh Hefner, Playboy Activist and Rebel, the recent Mm -hmm. documentary, and a lengthy profile on Hefner in the New York Times Magazine. So I was curious how you see your work as part of this explosion of discussions, mainstream and scholarly, about Playboy? Right. I I think that my work fits into this reconsideration of Playboy that's, as you said, is happening in a variety of ways. Um, Because enough time has passed, I would argue, since the days of this great confrontation between 
uh, Hugh Hefner and Playboy and the women's movement, um, particularly in the 1970s and as it developed into the anti-porn movement. I think enough time has passed that we can reevaluate Playboy, that we can look at it in a more nuanced way. And I think that that is behind a lot of this uh, new uh, scholarly and, and media attention that's, that's focused on Playboy in the last few years. Um, because certainly that new documentary that came out uh, really portrays Hugh Hefner as a kind of hero and a, a man who's really looking out for all of our liberties. Um, Elizabeth Viterago's work uh, touches upon uh, Playboy's gender politics and the way in which the magazine uh, reached out to women um, and, and feminist interests. She, she touches upon that a bit, but nobody um, has really deeply explored Playboy's relationship uh, to, to gender and heterosexuality and in particular to feminism um, uh, until my book did that. And I think it's because we can take the space now in, in order to do that. Whereas feminists in the 1970s, uh, women that I very much identify with, in fact, even if I'm not uh, of their generation in terms of my age, I think at the time, um, while there was a, a great diversity of feminist views on everything, uh, including Playboy magazine, and I, and I document some of that in my book, um, I think that for a mainstream leading feminist, there wasn't the space available uh, to be flexible, um, uh, to consider Playboy in a nuanced way, because the movement was really um, uh, facing a culture that was so pervasively sexist and misogynist um, that there, there, there wasn't a lot of room for nuance. And I think we can take that space now because the culture has changed so much. So I think that that's what's at least in part uh, behind so much of this reconsideration of Playboy, as well as I think the way in which once again, the brand has become so central in American culture. It's really on people's minds. Well, Hefner himself had, also is and essentially always has been engaged in a process of legacy building. Right. Um, you had the opportunity to spend time examining his uh, mammoth collection of scrapbooks at the mansion. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that process of archival work in such a personal setting. Um, that was a, uh supervised uh, by Hefner's personal archivist. Um, so I was able to access uh, the, the archives through him and then request copies of particular documents that I, I uh, knew existed in Hefner's personal archive, such as a death threat uh, that he got from uh, uh, some radical feminists in the um, uh, early 1970s, if I recall. I, I can't remember the particular year he received that. Um, and that was certainly uh, stunning to be able to um, uh, look through his personal archive. By that time, I had made uh, several trips to the company archive in Chicago, and some of the material is duplicated in each of the archives. But in terms of his personal scrapbook collection, there are over 2,000 uh, bound scrapbooks that Hefner has been accumulating since he was a teenager. He has always been thinking about uh, the recording of his life, the documenting of his life, and 
I think certainly as he's gotten older and become uh, this this global figure, uh, he's been thinking about his legacy. Um, So you can find things in the archive uh, like cartoons he drew when he was a teenager about him and his friends and, uh, you know, various uh, stories and comic strips that he made up um, about his times as a high schooler. Um, And I, I think that that's part of the reason and this is this is just my guess. Um, I, I've talked to a couple people at Playboy and asked them why they gave me so much access when they hadn't given so much ac- hadn't given so much access to anybody uh, previously. Um, and I think part of the reason that they did that is because I've started this project uh, just around the time Playboy was having its 50th anniversary. And they started producing, they started publishing these various books documenting their history, uh, complete collections of the first 50 years of Playmates, for instance. And so I think part of the reason I got this access is I came in at just the right time when Hefner and uh, various uh, you know upper echelon editors at the magazine were really thinking about how to solidify Playboy's legacy and how did they want it remembered. Um, And I was told uh, uh, by the executive editor that gave me um, uh, the access initially in 2005 that he was uh, really uh, appreciative and grateful that somebody was, as he said, finally taking the magazine seriously uh, from an academic or from a scholarly perspective. And, and that was uh, the reason why they initially let me into the archive. And so my access then to Hefner's personal archive uh, in the, the Playboy Mansion in Los Angeles really came after uh, several trips that I made to the, to the company archive, I had done by that time uh, various interviews uh, with people who had been affiliated with the magazine in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And I think uh, after a while, uh, the, the company realized that they could trust me with their history, uh, that I would be fair um, in my treatment of it. And so um, I was invited to the Playboy Mansion to do an interview with Hefner, and uh, uh, then they let me uh, peruse his his personal collection as well. The archival work is fascinating, but the oral history is particularly stunning. Um, I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit about how you came to choose the interviews that you did and also who would not be interviewed. Um, I started out with the interviews. Um, So much of this project um, really just sort of fell into my lap. Um, I was really shocked that I was given access to the company archive in 2005. So I was just happy with that part because I thought I was going to have to do this entire project um, without access to the company archive. And I was trying to figure out how to do that. How do you write history uh, with, without being able to access uh, the most basic archival documents? Um, And when I was given that access, I was, if I recall, I was actually invited to interview uh, Jim Peterson, who was a longtime Playboy editor, and he ran the Playboy Advisor uh, starting in the uh, early to mid-70s. And he was the Playboy Advisor, this very popular advice column in the magazine, for, oh, around 20, 25 years 
Um, and so I was offered the interview with him um, and I spoke to him and then he recommended other people uh, that I should talk to. Um, I, I, if I recall, that's how I got access to uh, Barbara Nellis, uh, who was a great interview for me. Um, uh, she was one of the uh, uh I think she was a, a research uh, editor, if I recall, uh, in the 60s and 70s, a self-avowed uh, feminist and civil rights activist. And then she set me up with Nat Lehrman, who was one of the lead editors for many, many years. And he, he was a great uh, oral history to land. And so that's how it really worked. Um, I called it the Playboy Grapevine because so many people who worked for the magazine um, in the 50s, 60s and 70s, worked there for decades. It, my, my sense of it in those years was that it was a very uh, close-knit kind of family-like organization. In fact, Barbara Nellis uh, said that she was allowed to bring her newborn baby uh, to the office with her. She says it was a great place for her to work as a new mom. And um, a lot of those people are still friends with each other and they're still in contact. So um, I was able to get uh, hooked up with, with most of the interviews that way. One person who didn't want to be in, interviewed uh, was one of the lead editors uh, back in those days, a man named Arthur Kretschmer. And he had just recently retired. And um, I was told uh, by Playboy's archivist, she was the one in contact with him, uh, trying to get the interview with me. Uh, her impression was that since he had just retired, he was kind of uh, wanting to, to, to just take a break from Playboy, and he wasn't really in the mood to talk about it. Um, so I didn't get the interview with him. As far as the Playmates, uh, that was just uh, a lot of that was luck, too. Um, I, I got uh, set up with my first Playmate interview, Alice Denham. Uh, she was a fantastic interview, a Playmate from the 50s. Um, because I had done uh, an interview many years ago with a German media source, and they had interviewed her as well. So it was actually that those uh, German uh, uh, journalists that connected me with her, and she gave me an interview and gave me the names of some other former Playmates. And then um, uh, the Playboy organization helped me track down uh, a number of Playmates, um, and uh, I was able to request interviews from a number of them. And again, a lot of the playmates from those years are friends with each other. There's this, you know, playboy community, uh, whether it's editors uh, from 30 or 40 years ago or playmates from 30 or 40 years ago. Many of them are friends and in touch with one another. Uh, so I was able to, to, to make my various connections that way. How about the feminists that you discuss toward the end of the text? Were you able to speak to any of them? Um, and did you find that valuable? Um, no, I was not able to interview interview any of the, the leading feminists that I quote. Um, I spoke to uh, so, some women's activists uh, from the 60s and 70s who had you know, various perspectives on Playboy at the time, but, 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 but those little uh, anecdotes didn't make it into the book. So what I was relying on uh, for, for the, the women's movements uh, were various primary documents from the 60s and 70s, um, as well as a very important interview that Betty Friedan, uh, an interview with Betty Friedan that Playboy conducted uh, in the, the 1990s. They devoted their 30th anniversary interview 
to Betty Friedan. And they described it as a very appropriate way to mark uh, the anniversary of their their very celebrated uh, uh, interview column. Uh, So as far as the feminists, I was relying on um, uh, the, the writings of the women themselves. To backtrack briefly, I'm really glad that you mentioned Peterson because one of the things I think your book does so well that's that's fairly new to the landscape of literature on Playboy is your attention to the advisor. Could you say more about that? Uh, can you hear me? You're cutting out. Carrie? Yeah, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you great. Okay, you were cutting out for a minute, sorry. Uh, the Playboy Advisor um, was one of the most popular columns in the magazine. Um, it started in the early 60s as an advice column. And at that point, um, it, it really talked about uh, and discussed issues from uh, cars, uh, uh, various consumer items like stereos, um, as well as advice on uh, dating, sex, relationships, things like that. And that was just uh, one of various advice columns uh, that that, that um, uh, emerged in the magazine in the 1960s. Uh, in the 50s, the magazine had the letters to the editor column, as, as most magazines do. Um, and that expanded in the 60s. Then the advisor was introduced. And then soon after, the Playboy Forum, which was specifically devoted to... Um, of various political issues of the 60s. Um, And so the advisor uh, became this multi-page advice column. And, you know, part of uh, trying to to work with the advisor, as well as the forum and the letters to the editor, was trying to figure out how seriously to take the letters that were attributed to readers. Um, Were they real? Were they made up by Playboy? Or were they some combination of the two? And in part in in doing that, I relied on previous work, previous historical work um, uh, that had used letters to the editor uh, in various magazines. Joanne Meyerowitz, uh, for instance, has done some of this. And and, and she argued that uh, readers' letters are are an important uh, source um, but additionally, uh, I was able to speak to Nat Lehrman, who was the original uh, Playboy advisor, as well as, as, as I mentioned, a Jim Peterson who took over in the early 70s. And they both insisted that the vast majority of letters in the advisor were real. Um, apparently, Nat Lehrman, when he took over the advisor in the first uh, couple years that the advisor existed, he made that uh, the policy for the first a few months or a year or so uh, when various editors were were sort of uh, had a hand in running that column. Uh, Apparently a number of the letters were made up, but Nat Lehrman insisted that they needed to use real letters uh, from Playboy readers. And uh, he took um, uh, the advisor very seriously. And in fact, Hugh Hefner took the advisor very, very seriously too. He felt very strongly uh, that he respect the relationship uh, that Playboy readers had with the magazine. And he felt that these various readers' uh, letter columns, the letters to the editor, the advisor, and the forum, that they be taken very seriously and treated with a lot of respect. Um, So 
letters would come into Playboy, and uh, Nat Lehrman uh, was the the lead advisor for most of the '60s, and uh, he would come up with answers, sometimes with uh, uh, some input and, and advice. Uh, from uh, some other people at Playboy. Um, and then the column before publication would be sent to Hefner uh, for him to go through and make sure all of the answers were appropriate and up to his standards. Um, so these readers' letter columns were a really important way in which Hefner and his editors were uh, communicating with their readers and creating a rapport, creating uh, what they hoped would be a very sort of uh, a relationship of mutual trust between reader and magazine. And Jim Peterson, he told me that when he took over the advisor in the 70s, he said occasionally he would um, uh, compile a number of letters into one composite um, uh, to deal with a a particular issue. Or sometimes, once in a while, he would uh, fabricate a letter uh, to deal with an issue that he thought would be relevant to readers, uh, but that no one had asked about yet. But they insisted uh, that the majority of letters were real. And uh, in the the, the company archive, there is no um, overall collection of readers' letters. So there's not one place where you can go and verify all of these letters that were published in the magazine. The readers' letters that I came across were uh, organized with all of the various other uh, company papers, Um, but there were a lot of readers' letters in there. And starting um, at some point in the early 60s, the company started keeping uh, reports of readers' letters. Uh, So you could verify how many uh, hundreds, sometimes thousands of letters the magazine Uh, received each month. And the reports gave examples and quotes from the various letters, as well as summaries of what the overall letters were talking about that month. Um, The numbers of letters coming into the advisor and the forum, as well as letters commenting on the different um, uh, uh, articles and such that were included in the previous month's issues. So there was a process of verification that I was able to do. While the the emphasis on the advisor is very original, um, you're also intervening in some pre-existing conversations about the role of Playboy um, as an instigator of a new consumerism that um, was important to the post-war era. Um, obviously, Oscar B. and... Uh, uh, and others recently have discussed it. I was wondering um, if you could say more about the issue of consumerism in Playboy. Yeah, um, I think that Playboy really explicitly used consumerism, well, in and of itself. Um, as the magazine uh, grew into the 1960s and adopted these various Uh, liberal, progressive critiques of American society, they stayed away from uh, the kinds of critiques of capitalism that were emerging at the time. And certainly the magazine um, had to defend its celebration of consumerism uh, as those critiques developed in the 1960s. Um, So I think that on the one hand, Hefner saw Uh, consumer capitalism as a very worthy American endeavor. And so 
there was much more consumerism, celebration of consumerism in magazine than there was celebration of sexuality or pictures of naked women. Um, there were various columns uh, from the start of the magazine emphasizing um, uh, shopping, uh, masculine consumerism, uh, fashion, cooking, decorating, um, uh, uh, you know, electronics, cars, things like that. And Hefner, uh, particularly through the editorial series, the Playboy Philosophy, talked a lot about um, the value of American consumerism, particularly in the context of the broader Cold War. Right, American culture itself was really emphasizing um, uh, the way in which Americans could uh, do their patriotic duty by shopping, right? Because this was supposedly the antithesis of Soviet communism and uh, the the kinds of ways in which Americans perceived Soviets as as, um, uh, being denied uh, the luxuries of of modern uh, consumerism. So that was the one thing. Uh, By celebrating consumerism, it was a kind of patriotic Americanism, and it was also a great way to get advertisers into the magazine. And Hefner, in the first uh, couple years of the magazine, was really adamant that the magazine only accept respectable uh, middle-class advertising. He didn't want any kind of advertising that spoke to uh, male insecurity uh, that would add to uh, seediness uh, in Playboy. Uh, so he held off on accepting any advertising for the first year or so until he could get uh, what he considered respectable uh, advertisers in the magazine. The first one was for a, a spring-made uh, sheets, if I recall. Um, but additionally, I think the other purpose that this consumerism served was to help refashion uh, post-war masculinity. And that's certainly what uh, some of the previous literature on Playboy uh, has started to discuss. Um, I think that that, that, con- that masculine consumerism in Playboy helped to um, send this message to American men, to Playboy's readers, that it was okay to uh, participate in post-war American culture uh, in terms of consumption, but it was okay to do it in a self-centered way. Because so much of American culture was certainly emphasizing consumerism, but much of it was emphasizing uh, consumption in the name of the family. And for men, uh, Elizabeth Cohen talks about this, uh, the way in which men were uh, encouraged to get out and shop. uh, But it was to shop for their families, backyard barbecues and things like that. And Playboy is absolutely rejecting that. They're saying, hey, men, you can go out there and buy fantastic clothes and uh, colognes and shoes and uh, uh, records, jazz records, whatever it might be, just for yourself, uh, because it's fun, and maybe uh, those consumer items are going to help you get a date and help you get that date uh, into your bed. Uh, So they're really using consumerism to separate masculinity um, uh, from the emphasis that so much of uh, post-war American culture was, you know, was trying to move masculinity into this uh, very strict husband, father, provider role. And Playboy was very much challenging that, that togetherness um, uh, in, in the magazine in the 1950s. 
Along those lines, uh, Beatrice Preciado um, is among the scholars who've been looking at the notion of the Playboy apartment or the bachelor pad. I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about that. Um, right. The, the, the bachelor pad features in Playboy were some of the most popular, uh, according to, to archival documents and conversations uh, that Hefner was having with his editors and staff, uh, These features on the Playboy Bachelor Pad were some of the most popular columns in the magazine in the 1950s. Um, Apparently, they got letters from readers about a couple of features on the the Bachelor Pad for years afterwards. Um, So I think that there was certainly uh, that the magazine was touching on on, on something for uh, readers in the 1950s to talk about and and celebrate this place. that was for men, right? This is this this is something uh, totally different than what we today call the the man's cave, right? Supposedly, women are in charge of the house, and there's one little room in the basement uh, that the husband has access to. But this again was a way in which Playboy was saying that no, you know. Bachelors, you can make your world about yourself for your own pleasure. And the bachelor pad was really a part of that. It was about creating a masculine space. Um, But it was a space in which men could really exhibit uh, their consuming talents. Um, So these discussions of the bachelor pad went into great detail about um, uh, uh, fabrics for curtains and uh, very high-end modern kitchens, uh, eventually a round rotating bed uh, that would certainly be the site of much seduction uh, if you were a, a, a successful uh, Playboy reader, Playboy bachelor. Um, so particularly through the concept of the bachelor pad, Playboy was taking um, what was by most of the culture thought of as a feminine space, the home, decorating the home, the running of the kitchen, the kinds of cooking that you would do in the kitchen. And they're taking it and refashioning all of that uh, to be useful and acceptable to a heterosexual man. So when they're talking about the kitchen, it's not um, to slave away over a hot stove so that you can get dinner on the table for your family. It's about um, uh, throwing together some hors d'oeuvres, mixing up some cocktails because you're having a party that evening with your other uh, high fashion, uh, very cosmopolitan friends. Uh, And hopefully at the end of that party, you're going to end up with a beautiful date uh, who stays after all of the other guests leave. Um, And so that was a big part of the Playboy lifestyle. And one of the ways, uh, once Hugh Hefner, um, as he says, uh, he came out from behind the desk in the late 50s and early 60s and started to become Mr. Playboy and, you know, really live the life that he was promoting in his magazine. Um, One of the ways in which he did that was by buying the, the, the original mansion, the Chicago mansion, and having, um, uh, you know, creating the Playboy bachelor pad for himself and uh, the round rotating bed, all of it. He actually uh, had that constructed for himself in Chicago and then again in L.A. when he moved out there in the early 70s. Um, and, then, and, and then that just fed into the whole Playboy phenomena because so much of the, uh, the media attention to Playboy in the 60s was about the various parties 
that were being held uh, at the mansion and discussions of his round rotating bed. Uh, so, so, so this uh, connection um, between the Playboy lifestyle and the bachelor pad as it existed in the magazine and then as it came to life in the Chicago mansion uh, was really a part of uh, uh, Hefner's construction of uh, ideal uh, bachelorhood. On the topic of the rotating bed, it's quite interesting that the editor of Esquire uh, had his own rotating bed before Hefner uh, designed his own. Um, I'm curious, in what ways did Playboy differ from Esquire in your reading of those texts? Um, well, you know, Hugh Hefner worked at Play, uh, sorry, worked at Esquire uh, briefly before he founded Playboy, and he was very inspired by Esquire. Um, he really took the format that Esquire had perfected in the 30s and into the 40s, um, which was a middle class uh, consumer men's magazine that was also sexy. Uh, Esquire had made a name for itself in the 30s and 40s um, uh, with its its uh, centerfold illustrations, uh, the Petty Girls and the Varga Girls. And apparently Hefner, uh, those were his ideal women as he was growing up. He had those kinds of pictures on his uh, wall when he was a child, apparently. Um, so he was very inspired by that. But Esquire changed uh, by the late 40s and early 50s. They moved away from that uh, kind of uh, sexual explicitness and really focused all of their attentions on being a middle-class consumer magazine. And so when Hefner founded Playboy, he took that original model of Esquire and just tweaked it a bit for the post-war years. He wanted to push the sexuality, uh, uh, make the images here, you know, photographs instead of illustrations, make them uh, a bit more racy than anything that had been included in Esquire uh, in its earlier days. Um, So he wanted to up the sexual factor but still maintain that classiness, uh, that middle-class acceptability, and certainly maintain uh, uh, that, that, that emphasis on uh, consumerism. Um, so Playboy, I, I think, was really filling uh, a, the kind of void that was left behind when Esquire uh, 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 diminished Uh, the sexuality in its own pages. And Hefner was very aware of that. And he talked explicitly about wanting to sort of uh, redo. Are you still there? Yes. Oh, sorry. There was a weird noise. Uh, Hefner wanted to redo uh, what Esquire had abandoned. And in the 50s, uh, based on some uh, uh, statistics of readers, uh, Playboy had a demographic that was about uh, 10 years younger than the average Esquire reader. In the late 50s, the average Esquire reader, um, if I recall, was probably in their late 30s, maybe approaching 40. And the average uh, reader of Playboy was in their late 20s or maybe 30. So we see this movement from the Petty Girls and the Varga Girls to the actual photographic image of the Playmate. And certainly I have to ask you about the Playmates, which you read in a remarkably original way. Could you tell us your views of the Playmates? Well, you know, when I started this project, um, 
I, I have always considered myself a, a very committed feminist. When I started this project, um, as I described earlier, I assumed I was just looking at masculinity in Playboy in the 50s in the context of this supposed crisis of masculinity. I assumed the magazine was going to just be, be filled with sexism. And I assumed that there was nothing to say, nothing new to say about the Playmates, because we all know the story of the Playmates. Um, they're... It's, they're, they're Images of objectified, dehumanized women. Um, and But then once I started looking at the magazine and thinking about it in the context of the 1950s, I realized that there was a potential for um, a different kind of reading of those images. And, and I, I mean this very specifically in the context of a pre- feminist America, before the women's movement, before um, women were able to uh, uh, really challenge their status uh, in American society, particularly their sexual status, I discovered, um, I, I believe and I argue in the book, that in the 50s and early 60s, the playmates um, really were challenging very rigid expectations of feminine sexuality in the 50s and early 60s um, in what was experienced by many Americans as a very conservative sexual culture. The expectations of women and their sexuality um, uh, were very harsh. Uh, Women were supposed to be sexy and supposed to be sexual beings, but only express that sexuality within marriage, ideally. Of course, that's not the way uh, many people live their lives. Alfred Kinsey uh, showed us that. Um, uh, but, but public discussions of sexuality really emphasized that women should uh, constrain their sexuality to the marriage bed. But then here comes Playboy, um, which pretty quickly becomes, while very racy, uh, still a, a, a relatively middle class sexy magazine, and they're showing images of, uh, yes, very young, very white, um, uh, single women in a sexual way. And the images of the Playmates in the 50s and 60s um, uh, talked about them as girls next door. You know, Hugh Hefner likes to say he invented the sexy girl next door. Um, and, And I started to think, well, this is a celebration of free, uh, single, feminine sexuality. And that kind of celebration uh, was, 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 I think, few and far between in 1950s culture. Um, single women, particularly very young women, 18, 20, 22 years old, um, they were supposed to hold, have a real tight control over their sexuality. And yet here was a magazine that said, it's okay for single women to be sexual and to celebrate their sexuality. Of course, uh, that celebration was in the service of heterosexual masculinity. But um, I think that this was a challenge uh, to these this, this very uh, rigid dichotomy that said, you know, there are good girls and there are bad girls. And the, the, the two uh, categories should never be blurred. Hefner really blurred uh, those categories and said that good uh, single women, the nice girl next door, 
can be sexual. And there's nothing wrong with that. A lot of the accompanying articles um, and uh, uh, photographs that accompanied uh, the Playmate Centerfolds uh, showed the Playmates in their everyday life. I'm sure some of it was made up, but nonetheless uh, showed young women um, oh, I don't know, going to college, hanging out with their friends. I think even some of them showed them on dates with boyfriends, showed them with their parents, uh, sitting down, having dinner with their mom and their dad. Um, this said, uh, the, you know, all these accompanying photographs with the, the, the nude centerfold said that these women are fantastic. They are good, respectable girls who, you know, are going to do what they want in life, become a teacher, become an actress, uh, get married to an upstanding uh, 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 male citizen, whatever it is. And even their parents aren't judging them for being in Playboy. So why should you? I think that was a real challenge uh, uh, to to, to the post-war culture. And... uh, You know, this was one of the things I was most excited about uh, in my research was talking to playmates from the 50s and 60s. Um, And I I got to ask them what posing meant to them. Uh, Was it a kind of rebellion? Uh, Was it a, a, a freeing? Was it a liberation? And they had, you know, mixed mixed uh, uh, views of their experience in Playboy. Some of them said, absolutely. Uh, uh, Joyce Nazari, uh, for instance, a a playmate uh, from those early years, um, she said she never thought of herself as anything other than a normal average girl. Uh, But she was modeling, and she didn't have a problem with appearing in Playboy. Uh, Many of the, the playmates from those years said they worried about what their fathers would say, if they would get mad at them or not. Uh, but some of them said that their parents were okay with it. And um, so I, I think that, again, many years after uh, the, the feminist confrontation with Playboy, I think it's just time to, to think about the ways in which the magazine could have been useful uh, to people uh, in those pre-feminist years. And uh, as far as I've been able to determine, uh, there was an a, approximately 25% female readership of Playboy uh, through most of those years. So women were getting these various messages, too. And I think a lot of women appreciated uh, that, that, that there was an, uh, uh, a place where sexuality, adult sexuality, could be discussed um, in a more open way than it could in, in most places in the 1950s. I was hoping you could also discuss a bit whether you feel that there were changes in the aesthetic of the Playmate over the course of the period that's in your study. You know what? There there really wasn't. Um, To a great degree, the aesthetic did not change. You can look at Playmates in the early 70s. Um, and other than maybe their hairstyle is a little different, um, uh, you know, maybe one little piece of clothing that they're wearing uh, indicates that times have changed. Uh, maybe they're wearing love beads or something like that. The aesthetic didn't change. Uh, what changed in the period that I studied Playboy um, was that the magazine started to include non-white women uh by uh the mid 1960s 
uh, we saw an Asian American playmate, and in 1965, we saw the first African American playmate, Jennifer Jackson. Now, those non-white playmates were still the exception to the rule. The vast majority of women uh, who have always appeared in Playboy have, have been white. Uh, certainly in those years, you only have a handful of non-white playmates. But that was one way in which the magazine uh, started to, port- to change its portrayal of uh, uh, ideal uh, 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 American beauty. Um, and... It, it, it was a big deal at the time uh, when Playboy included its first African-American playmate. It was pushing the envelope. Um, uh, uh, Playboy had um, really challenged uh, segregation and supported civil rights in a variety of ways uh, in and outside of the magazine. Um, but it did take them a little while uh, to get uh, their first black playmate in 1965. Um, And then the next big change came about when the the images of the Playmates, the centerfold, started to be more explicit by the early 1970s. By then, and this is part of the reason why I end my study there, the culture is changing so much. The culture is really moving past um, uh, Playboy in terms of uh, standards of sexuality. And uh, Playboy starting to get a lot of competition from more explicit magazines like Penthouse and Hustler. Um, so Playboy started to make uh, the centerfold more explicit, particularly in uh, showing pubic hair for the first time in the early 70s. But they did it very begrudgingly. Uh, there was a lot of debate amongst Hefner and his editors about whether they should do that. Um, many of them thought that they shouldn't because they thought that the Playboy formula was what worked and it was what defined them. It was uh, a sexuality. It was sexiness. It was nudity to a degree. And pushing uh, uh, the envelope of nudity too far would really change what Playboy felt it represented. Um, uh, so they did become a bit more explicit in the early to mid-70s. Uh, but... But other magazines just just continued to push that envelope and ultimately Hefner pulled back from that. And he said he refused uh, to go down that road. Um, So those were the two big changes uh, uh, in in those uh, early decades of, of Playboy Playmates. Several scholars um, and journalists of late have talked about what they see um, as the changes that Playboy made to sexuality that are still on view today, and um, Ariel Levy being one of them from one particular side, Bridget Berman from a very different side. What do you see as ultimately the view of sexuality that Playboy was able to change? Um, I think that in some very broad ways, uh, Playboy helped to open up uh, American culture, American pop culture uh, to sexuality. This was a process that was certainly happening anyway. Uh, Playboy is not solely responsible for it, but Playboy helped it along. Um, uh, making American culture more sexual for better or for worse. Um, Certainly when Playboy was founded in 1953, that's the year of Alfred Kinsey's uh, study of women's sexuality. Um, 
the culture was really changing and uh, public discussions of sexuality uh, were really changing. And I think that Kinsey and Playboy were very two very important steps in that process uh, in the mid 20th century. Um, and so I think that in a lot of ways, Hefner was just a little bit ahead of the curve. That probably would have happened anyway as we get into the 1960s. But Playboy was helping it along. Hefner was really... Um, uh, focused on bringing consumer sexuality in the form of a magazine, bringing it out of the gutter and onto um, uh, the coffee tables of middle-class America. And he was very successful in doing that. And I think that it helped to open the door um, uh, to discussions of public sexuality. Um, as I, I certainly believe it helped to change views of women's sexuality in particular, um, for better or for worse. Um, but Playboy uh, was certainly very vocal in the 60s and early 70s about political issues that were important to feminists. Um, the ERA, reproductive rights. Uh, Playboy was very upfront on uh, many of those issues. And so I think that once we get into the 1970s, as I said, the culture far surpassed Playboy. And it really got lumped in uh, with uh, more sexually explicit, much more... Uh, uh, harsh magazines like Hustler. Um, so we've often tended to associate it with uh, that really hardcore pornography um, and, and often um, uh, more negative portrayals of women's sexuality. And, you know, we, we get then uh, by the early 2000s the way in which um, uh, Playboy's view of sexuality, particularly heterosexuality, although they were very vocal in terms of gay rights in the 60s, but in terms of heterosexuality, they are telling us that it's okay uh, for heterosexual men to put off marriage, to remain bachelors for longer, a longer period of time in their life. Um, and they're also telling us uh, that it's okay for women uh, to put off marriage and uh, remain single and explore their sexuality. And certainly consumerism uh, being a, a way in which these, these two uh, uh, genders um, uh, can sort of uh, blur their roles. Both men and women uh, can be sexy consumers. And I think that's exactly what we saw uh, in the late 90s and early 2000s with a show like Sex in the City. Um, I say in the book that those women, I think, are, are modern day incarnations of the ideal woman that Hefner was constructing in the 50s and 60s. Um, independent, fun-loving, single um, uh, uh, shoppers uh, who have a lot of sex. Um, and certainly there were a couple episodes of, of the, the show where the women visited the Playboy Mansion. Uh, Hugh Hefner appeared on Sex and the City in an entire season where uh, the lead character, Carrie Bradshaw, wore um, the, the Playboy bunny logo uh, on her necklace. Um, and, and when I interviewed uh, Hugh Hefner in 2006, he said he viewed that as a real victory for him and a way in which um, uh, his version of ideal femininity had really become central uh, to an overall American conception of ideal womanhood. And you can, you know, read that uh, as you will. Certainly, um, I appreciate where Ariel Levy is coming from. Um, uh, but nonetheless, I, I think that's where we've ended up. 
anyone who's written a book or long long form project knows that much of the research that you do does not end up in the final book. And I'm curious if that research informed your opinion about what you think the new frontier of Playboy studies ought to be. Wow, good question. Um, I think uh, that there's work to be done on Playboy sort of as a a business model, as a business phenomena. Um, I came across so much in the archive about... um, uh, you know, letters written from people, uh, arc, um, articles that were published in various magazines and newspapers at the time talking about Playboy as a business model and as a successful magazine. Um, so I think that there's still work to be done on that side of things. Um, we, we certainly know um, that, that Playboy was an important mainstream a literary magazine. Um, and I, I didn't spend uh, too much time talking about that, but Playboy as a literary phenomena, um, I, I think is, is something useful to discuss. I'm really interested, and I, and I talk about this in my book, um, but I think there's more work to be done on Playboy and American religion um, because Hugh Hefner really railed against mainstream organized religion. He talked a lot about um, Americans' uh, 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 repressive Puritan heritage. And he thought that organized religion was uh, um, something that really constrained American liberty, particularly, obviously, a sexual liberty. Um, So he, he talked so much about religion in the magazine. And he eventually in the 60s actually put one of his editors um, in charge of Playboy's relationship with the religious community. Um, so uh, the, the name is uh, escaping me now. The, the editor that was in charge of going out and speaking uh, to clergy, going to religious conferences. There were a number of uh, uh, panels held across the country discussing modern religion and the place of religion in modern society. And they often had a Playboy representative there. There I found in the archive a number of sermons from religious leaders across the country, often Unitarians, uh, who were talking about Playboy in a positive way in their Sunday sermons. Um, uh, So I I think that there's uh, something interesting to be done there in in terms of uh, Playboy and and mid-century American religion. That's fascinating. Uh, Carrie, we've taken up a lot of your time already, but I do have one final question, um, which is what are you working on next? I am working on something that is absolutely nothing like Playboy. (laughs) Um, I'm actually uh, getting started on a project uh, that concerns uh, a woman sheriff in Kentucky uh, in the 1930s who oversaw the country's last public execution. So very, very far away from uh, something like Playboy, but I'm really excited about it. That's a really exciting project. And as as you say, quite a departure. Yes. Uh, I really want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed talking to you. Um, Take care. And to our listeners, I hope that you will check out um, Bachelors and Bunnies, The Sexual Politics of Playboy. Thanks so much. Thank you.
Carrie, while talking about the interviews, I was also fascinated that you had the chance to speak to both Hugh Hefner and his daughter, Christy, who ended up taking over the Enterprise later, of course. Um, could you tell us more about your experience with both Hefners? Uh, that was uh, another one of the research opportunities that fell into my lap. Of course, I had, um, you know, hoped, daydreamed that one day uh, in this process I might be able to interview Hugh Hefner, uh, but I actually hadn't requested the interview. Um, I, I was it, in part waiting for the right moment, um, uh, but I, I really didn't think that they would grant uh, permission to interview. Hugh Hefner. And additionally, I didn't race into that request because I thought um, that, while it would be amazing to speak to him, I I thought that I wouldn't get anything interesting. I thought that he wouldn't tell me anything useful or new or sincere uh, uh, in in terms of uh, uh, the history of Playboy. But after I had worked my way through the Playboy grapevine, as I've described it, uh, I got an email one day from uh, one of Hefner's West Coast publicists. And he said, we've heard about your project and uh, we're wondering if you'd be interested, interested in interviewing Mr. Mr. Hefner. And I said, yes, I would be interested in interviewing Mr. Hefner. Wow. Um, and uh, after some uh, logistical problems, I, uh, I, I was given permission, but they didn't tell me that they had granted me permission. There was some breakdown of communication. I found out about 36 hours before the interview was scheduled. I raced out to L.A., and went to uh, the Playboy Mansion, and I, at, I got to sit down and, and talk with Hugh Hefner. Um, and the, the first a few minutes of the interview were as I expected. He was just reciting uh, the party line, you know, the various sound bites that I've heard him recite in countless interviews, nothing especially productive uh, to, to, to my research project. But I had come armed with some documents from the archive, particularly um, some documents, some memos, some long memos uh, in which Hefner was describing to his staff members his views on the feminist movement uh, in 1969 and 1970 and the way he thought the magazine should deal with feminism. And uh, uh, he says some very negative things in some of those memos. And then later on, uh, in some later memos, he he changes uh, his view and, and says some very positive things about feminism. And I discuss all this in the book. But finally, I just interrupted him. And I, I took out one of these memos from 1970. And I just set it on the table in front of him. And I said, this is what you said about feminism in 1970. You know, what do you think about that now? Why did you say that, etc." And he put on his glasses and, and looked at the memo and said, wow, I haven't seen this in a long time. And that really got his attention. And from there, we had a very productive conversation. Um, I, I was very pleased. I think I got some very interesting perspectives from him, some very interesting quotes that I was able to use in my book. Um, and uh, he, he was very gracious. That's when I was then given permission uh, to go look at his personal archive in the mansion. And he um, invited me to stay for dinner with him and his friends that night. So it was a very, very uh, interesting uh, day and he told me that he really appreciated the interview uh, because most 
interviews he conducts, um, uh, you know, he's not asked these kinds of questions. Uh, he's usually asked about, you know, his newest girlfriends or whatever. So it was, it was a really productive conversation. And then after that, I was able to go to the New York office of Playboy. And that's where Christy uh, was based uh, just before she retired. And I said, I spoke to your father. Can I have an interview with you now? And that really helped open the door uh, to her. And I, again, had a really nice conversation uh, with Christy, uh, particularly regarding her views on her father and his relationship to feminism. Um, so as I said, the, 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 oper- the, the research opportunities really fell into my lap. I think I, a lot of it was good timing. Well, that's exciting. I love the story about you talking to Hefner. Um, I'd also be interested in hearing a little bit more about the conversation that you had with Christy. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I found uh, most interesting um, was the way in which she challenged her father's self-definition uh, as a feminist. Hugh Hefner calls himself a feminist. He even said he was speaking for feminist issues before feminists knew what their issues were. Um, uh, uh, he, he and Nat Lehrman uh, both said that type of thing. I have them quoted in the book. Um, and I, I asked Christy about that because Christy is a very active feminist. Um, uh, she's very active in terms of uh, women's reproductive rights. She's very active in supporting women in business um, and ways in which mainstream leading feminists do not embrace, excuse me, do not embrace Playboy, uh, such as Gloria Steinem. I'm not aware that she has changed her views about Playboy in the last 40 years, but she has become a supporter of Christy Hefner and her activism. Um, so Christy has been a really important feminist leader, business leader. Um, so I was really interested to hear her take on Playboy and feminism. Um, and she challenged her father's self-definition uh, as a feminist. She says, no, I don't believe my father is a feminist. Maybe he does, but I don't believe he's a feminist. Um, she said that... Her father, while he was ahead of the curve in terms of um, uh, being ahead of mainstream American culture in terms of sexual liberation and gender equity in the 50s and early 60s, she says, yes, my father was a product of that time. Um, And she told me that there was no way Playboy was ever going to portray women in the way a feminist magazine would have. Um, she said he was ahead of his time, but he was also a product of his time. So she said she does not consider him a feminist. She considers him a humanist. Um, and I asked her for, uh, you know, what do those, I asked her what those words mean to her. And she said she thinks of a feminist as a person who really uh, works for and prioritizes the advancement of women. Uh, She considers herself a feminist. She considers her father a humanist, which she defined as someone um, who believes in the good of 
uh, all people, male or female, um, and looks for uh, positive progress uh, for humanity in the here and now, a sort of very secular uh, a, a view on uh, uh, men's and women's liberty, uh, anti-racism, things like that. I have the specific quotes uh, and definitions in my book, uh, but I thought that was, a, that was a really interesting perspective in a way in which she's very, very loyal to her father uh, and and really sees the magazine as a positive portrayal of women's femininity, but acknowledges that it is not a totally feminist magazine and that she she doesn't consider her father a feminist. Great. Thanks so much. This has been New Books in Popular Culture. My name is Erin Lee Mock, and I want to thank you for listening to my interview with Carrie Pizzullo, author of Bachelors and Bunnies, The Sexual Politics of Playboy. Thanks so much.